0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Joining us today is Dr. Wendy Rinke, who is a professor of school psychology at the University of Missouri, and Dr. Keith Herman, who is also a professor in the Educational School and Counseling Psychology program, also at the University of Missouri. Drs. Reinke and Herman are co-directors of the Missouri Prevention Center, which works to bring community members and researchers together to help schools and families apply techniques that promote social and academic success. They they and a third author have recently published an article in the Journal of Assessment for Effective Intervention, exploring dynamics of classroom interaction between teachers and students that are related to classroom behaviors, including problematic behaviors, and we'll be talking about that in today's program. So, Wendy and Keith, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. So I, I recently read a, a summary of an article that you published uh, in an academic journal, and I was, I was very interested in the article because it addressed the issue of classroom misbehaviors and how teachers respond to that. I guess the way that I would like to start, uh, Wendy, if you could talk to us a little bit about what types of problematic behaviors teachers tend to experience in classroom situations, uh, maybe sort of define what that means for listeners and, and provide a few examples.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. So student behaviors can really range from sort of minor misbehaviors, such as just moving around the classroom when the expectation is for them to be seated or talking out of turn um, to more serious behaviors that you might see uh, students pushing or fighting with a peer or openly refusing to do what a teacher asks them to do.
0: Now, I would assume um, because of the program that the two of you work in, you're dealing um, with a certain age group of students in general when you do your research. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So um, this particular project that the article is about is uh, students who are in kindergarten to third grade. Mm-hmm. But we also have uh, middle school um, studies that we do as well. Uh
0: huh. And, and and of course, both of you are also college professors. And I and I think that it would be fair to say that there there are certain there are certain misbehaviors that certainly change as a student gets older. But in general, the way that you described it as being some behaviors that are are misbehaviors that are active, where the student is actually doing something outwardly that is problematic, that could be one type of misbehavior. But there's also passive misbehaviors where a student. Might just be intentionally zoning out, and that and that really can happen across age groups. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, so with that understanding um, in mind, I guess I guess I just have one additional follow-up question. Um, I know this wasn't part of your study, but based upon your knowledge of of this area of behavior in a classroom and classroom management, do you think that with today's students, given that they have so much greater access and, and, and possibilities for using technology in a classroom environment, has, has there been new types of misbehaviors that have started to emerge, or is it just sort of the same type of misbehaviors that we as teachers have always experienced that you just have new tools to do it with? I don't know if that's a fair question. But it's an interesting one given sort of the demographic of students that are entering our classrooms now
2: Well, I think um, you know generationally Scott we every generation kind of looks to the younger generation and makes comparisons and often concludes that they're not measuring up in the same way as prior generations and, um, and thinking that kids today are worse than kids from past generations and I think that's an oversimplification in the sense that um, in many ways, kids of this generation are doing better than prior generations and a lot of health indicators, things like kids are much less likely to smoke cigarettes, they're much less likely to binge drink alcohol, they're much less likely to um, have a teen pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so I think generationally, I'm not as impressed by the variability as um, as by the fact that across the country, different schools and school district service, different types of students who are bringing to school a range of risk factors. And so in those schools or districts where we're concentrating, many kids who are coming to school having experienced toxic environments. And Mm -hmm. by toxic environments, I'm talking about poverty, I'm talking about um, repeated occurrence of traumatic events, I'm talking about things that interfere with their development. Um, that creates unique challenges for those schools where, you know, half or more of the kids in the building are coming to school not ready to learn or prepared for the behavior expectations of school.
0: Keith, um, just to follow up on that, because I, I think that's a, a, a really interesting point. I, I would assume, I mean, I, I live in a community that's in sort of a rural Appalachian setting. And, uh, and you know, I'm not sure exactly where, I, I don't recall exactly if uh, you even stated where you did your, your research for this article, but the two of you obviously have experience in dealing with uh, and and talking with teachers and students in different types of school districts than the one that's in my community. I I would guess that those stressors and risk factors that you just described, there would be different manifestations of that in different types of schools, but you still get back to sort of fundamentally similar characteristics, is the student in a healthy, safe environment that allows them to succeed academically? The, the exact answer to that question might change, but it's still sort of a root fundamental cause. Is Is that a fair assumption?
2: I think it's a very fair assumption. I think, you know, the schools and teachers, educators are challenged to, um, to educate all students and uh, that we know that schools can be places that can help students overcome, you know, those barriers to education and be successful despite some of those challenges. And one other point I would make to this, regardless of the setting where teachers find themselves and the types of challenges they're dealing with, we we hear from teachers over and over again that classroom management is one of the biggest stressors of their job. Mm -hmm. And many teachers, if not most teachers, will tell us that they've been woefully unpre- un- underprepared to mm-hmm. deal with the types of behaviors are seeing in their classroom. And so that really, I mean, the central message from that for me is that we need to do a much better job of preparing our teachers, supporting our teachers to um, be successful in their interactions and, and relationships with students.
0: That's great, and actually a, a good segue to the next question I wanted to ask. Wendy, uh, one of the things that I was really, uh, because of my professional training, interested in in your article is the way that, that you uh, and uh, Keith and your other co-author discussed the interaction as being sort of fundamental to classroom management for the teacher. Um, of course, I'm trained in the field of communication where we we you know specifically look at interaction patterns, but that's really what you all described as being a, an essential cornerstone uh, in your article. Can you talk a little bit about the role that, that interaction plays between teachers and students and why those patterns are so important to this issue of classroom management?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um... So, like, the interactions between teachers and students, what we know is they're very reciprocal in nature, meaning that um, the actions of one really triggers the actions of the other. So, for instance, if a teacher notices that a student is sitting quietly and working on an assignment, the teacher might acknowledge that by providing praise to the student. And then the student will continue to be an engaged learner, and that student may actually be more likely to display that similar behavior in the future. Um, and that's mostly because, you know, most students really enjoy receiving attention from their teachers. Um, however, there are some students where any attention from a teacher is reinforcing. So when a teacher provides attention in the form of maybe a reprimand or a correction to a student, it could actually increase the likelihood that that student displays that behavior in the future because they know if they do that again, they'll get attention from their teacher. And for some students with challenging behaviors, um, teachers and students might engage in what we call a course of interactions or interactions that spiral into more and more negative exchanges. Um, so, for instance, a teacher might provide a reprimand to a student who then reacts by increasing the intensity of that behavior. And the teacher then um, becomes more forceful in the reprimand, which then results in a student becoming yet more um, Intensifying that behavior even more, which could lead to the teacher actually having that student removed from the classroom. And for some students who find school to be less fun or who struggle with academics or find it to be difficult, they can actually learn that by engaging in those challenging behaviors, they get out of the things that they don't like to do, making it more likely that they'll actually act out like that in the future.
0: Uh, Interesting. So it, it has exactly the opposite effect that the teacher might want to be accomplishing. Exactly. Yes, um, Wendy. Sticking on that, you mentioned uh, praise, and and one of the things that I you know thought was interesting in this discussion in, in your article was that you know you basically give the reader the the understanding that classroom management and the things that the teacher says is not just as simple as you know please stop that. I mean, there there actually is some nuance to how these interactions need to unfold for the teacher to maybe accomplish her or his goals. So you mentioned praise, for example, uh, in the answer to the last question. If you were in a classroom setting, uh, or, or I guess more appropriately, if you were talking with a, a teacher that is getting ready to go into the classroom for the first time and giving uh, her advice on how to use praise effectively, um, how, would you, how would you, you know, sort of recommend that following some, some of the practices that you know would be more effective?
1: Yeah, I mean, praise is a relatively easy but really impactful tool that teachers can use uh, with their students, and it's most effective when it's genuine, so the teacher really means it, that the the behavior that they're praising, they they genuinely want to see more of, and they think that student is doing well. Um, It's also more impactful if the behavior they're praising is meaningful, so it's not a trivial behavior, um, and the student feels like it's a meaningful um, thing that they're receiving the praise. Um, And then most importantly, it's really um, best praise is when it's specific in that it describes exactly what the student is doing. So, for instance, a teacher may say, Scott, you are sitting up in your chair and your eyes are on me and ready to learn versus good job, Scott, which doesn't give you as much information about what you're doing well.
0: Right. So it's really providing not only the 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 praise, but it's providing a lot of contextual cues so that the student understands what the behavior is. So that hopefully, as you said, it would be reinforced to continue in the future. Right. Keith, um, we were talking about uh, the you know praise and how classroom interaction is really the cornerstone of classroom management. Um, and Wendy was discussing the teacher student interaction patterns. Keith, your article points out that those interaction patterns are not necessarily uh, the same for all students, and and in fact, you actually mentioned this in part of your answer before the break. Can you talk about some of the the research that speaks to how um, there are different um, findings with respect to uh, certain demographic characteristics or academic profiles and the ways that teachers typically will engage in these classroom interaction patterns?
2: Well, I'll talk specifically about our findings, and they do, they're consistent with prior studies, and that is um, that we found that um, black students, students who qualified for free and reduced-price lunch, and uh, boys were more likely to receive negative attention from their teachers during these five-minute observations, and um, they were less likely to receive positive attention from their teachers. And to put this on a, you know, metric that is more in practical terms, we found that Um, And just focusing on, say, white and black differences for students, um, we found that black students were 1.8 times more likely to experience negative attention from their teacher during these interactions than white students. And white students were one and a half times more likely to receive positive attention from their teacher during these five-minute observations. And so if you extend these patterns out over a typical school day of, say, six hours, that would mean the average black student would be getting 16 reprimands or experiences of negative attention from their teacher versus nine for white students and white students would be getting 18 uh, interactions of positive attention versus 12 for black students and what we know from prior research is that it's really this ratio of positive interactions to negative interactions that makes a big difference for child development and so what that would translate to is for in our study um, for white students they were experiencing a rate of two to one positive positive to negative meaning they had two praise statements or positive interactions with teachers for every one negative interaction for black students it was one praise statement for every 1.3 negative interactions and so what you get is a picture of a profoundly different educational experience for, for students who are experiencing more positive relationships with their teachers or interactions versus negative. And I think that's a an interesting and important finding that is consistent with prior research. I,
0: I completely agree the way that you characterize that. And I think that, um, you know, if there's one takeaway... Uh, for uh, you know teachers and and researchers from your article besides the fact that you have such a great instrument that you developed is are those findings and how they are consistent i I mean I, I had read before that there were differences but I think that what really struck home for me in your article was the the way that you're able to quantify it and just see what a stark difference it would be for uh, different types of students, black versus white, or, or other ways of, of thinking about uh, the, the, the differences among our students. I just thought that was a really fundamentally important point in your article. Now, do you, do you think that um, based upon uh, this knowledge, I, I, I know that the, this was not the intent explicitly of your article, but I would I would assume that we as educators and people training educators that, that the awareness of that difference um, is fundamentally important to get across, right?
2: I, I think it's really important, absolutely, for, for people to understand this research and understand how common these findings are. And I think the other important piece is that it's really hard for teachers to monitor these interaction patterns on their own on a moment-to-moment basis. And, and that's one of the reasons that we developed this tool is because if a teacher's in a classroom with 20 students, um, they're only gonna get rough estimate of how frequently they're interacting with which student in what type of way. But, but with this really brief observation tool, we can give them ongoing feedback that m- will make them more aware of these patterns and that um, you know, all teachers wanna have a positive impact on youth. Uh, and this is one way that, that they can continue to do that and to influence all youth in their in positive ways.
0: So, so that's a great uh, segue to talking about the, uh, the tool that the, two, the three of you developed in your article, uh, the two of you and your co-author. Wendy, um, maybe if you could, for the listeners, sort of describe what was available for uh, either researchers or practitioners who were wanting to work with teachers in, in uh, school settings previous to your study, and then maybe talk about what the instrument was that you developed and why it offers uh, some potential advantages in those settings.
1: Sure. Um, so there's different methods to measuring teacher and student behaviors. One way um, that's been used prior um, and continues to be used is having teachers and students um, rate themselves or one another um, about their behavior or interactions or even their relationships. Um, and the problem with that is it's, it's retrospective. So they have to reflect on, you know, what's happened in the past. Um, and it may not necessarily reflect what's happening at that moment in the classroom. Also, those types of measures can be time consuming and they may not be necessarily sensitive to change um, over time. Um, other measures that are available, there are other observation measures out there that you can use um, that uh, researchers or practitioners will observe in a classroom for you know, maybe 20 minutes or so and then give global ratings of what the perception is of what they saw. So was it more negative or positive and so forth. Um, What our tool brings is it's, we're in the classroom and you are just telling moment by moment what's happening so that you are really getting a snapshot or a picture of exactly how those interactions are playing out moment to moment in the classroom, which then can really be useful um, to provide feedback to the teacher around those interactions. Um, So like Keith said, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to have 20, 25 kids in your classroom and sort of know how you're interacting with them. Um, at different periods of the day or throughout the year and having just a brief tool where you can get snapshots of that and get feedback about, oh, I, I'm actually providing more negative and positive attention to certain individuals in my classroom. And then being able to change that is really what um, we hope this tool can be used for.
0: And and Keith, the primary purpose of the article was to uh, essentially provide evidence of the effectiveness of the tool that you all created. Uh, is there anything that you can summarize easily for uh, the audience that might talk about the advantages that you saw for it? I mean, Wendy's already talked about the efficiency of how it's used, but from a reliability standpoint, is, is this a scale or a tool uh, that you see as being an effective way um, across schools and, and, and across teachers to uh, sort of assess these interactions?
2: Yeah, it's a central question of our work with the tool and its development. And, you know, a lot of the ideas from the tool originated from Wendy's dissertation about 10 years ago, and she's continued to to modify the, the tool and improve it. And what we've consistently found is that people can be trained to use it um, in a relatively short period of time, of a half day or workshop, and then some time in a school practicing it. And most importantly, we we found that In all of our observations, um, 30% of the time we have two people coding the same classroom and student at the same time. And so we're always interested in this question, are they coding it the same way? And we consistently find 90% agreement um, between two different raters over time. And so that gives us a lot of confidence that what we're coding is um, identifiable behaviors that can be reliably recorded in classrooms across the nation.
0: So Keith kind of alluded to the fact that you've used this both for research purposes, but also for, I, I guess, what I would call applied intervention mm-hmm. or training purposes. Um, maybe you could comment a little bit about that. And and then also, if people were interested in trying to learn more about this tool, um, what would be the best way for them to do so?
1: Yeah, so we've used... Um this tool in many ways. So for our research to sort of study whether the interventions that we do um, have an impact um, on student and teacher outcomes, but also I've used it with teachers um, who are maybe new to the field um, and go out and observe and then give them feedback about how they're doing. So this tool could really be used by principals um, as they do walkthroughs um, to give feedback to teachers or other um, Other people working with teachers in school, sometimes there's instructional coaches or other individuals that go in and are already observing for certain things in a classroom. They could just add this tool in um, to help give some feedback to teachers and help them improve their interactions with students. Um, For people who are interested in in finding out more about this, um, they can certainly um, email me directly. Also, the journal that published this article, there's actually going to be a... um, It's a more practitioner uh, friendly article that directly describes how to do it and has um, a template for what you could use in the classroom to just tally the different behaviors that are uh, part of the tool.
0: That's very useful. And I I tell you what, when we actually um, put the podcast up, we'll make sure that there's a link to the journal um, article so that people can find it that way. So that's the great advice for that. I I guess my last question, and this is really to both of you, and you you can take turns answering it, you know, the two of you are, you know, among the, the you know, leading national experts on this issue of classroom management and, and how teachers do that to affect positive uh, behaviors in classroom situations. But you're also teachers. And ha- based upon your uh, experience as researchers, have you changed in the way that you teach in your classes? And I know that you teach a college-age classroom that, that probably in, in most cases has a um, Teachers or graduate students or both, uh, and so it's a very different type of student population. But but have you changed as teachers in the way that you interact with your students based upon the fact that you've been doing research on this for a number of years?
1: Oh, I think so. Um, I, you know, I'm very cognizant of sort of how um, how often I give positive attention to my students in the classroom, or even as I'm mentoring them through dissertations or so forth. Um, and it's because, and I also like to model it. So what I'm, you know, sometimes I'll be teaching behavioral interventions in a classroom. And so I modeled this behavior so that it becomes sort of part of um, what they are learning is seeing it in action. And so I definitely um, pay attention to that when I'm teaching.
0: Mm-hmm. Keith?
2: I think in addition to that, it also makes me reflect on myself as a parent. You know, there's so many parallels between... Uh, teaching and influence on youth and parenting, and, and I think some of the things that we ask of teachers and expect them to do, it's just really important to acknowledge that, that it's really challenging, and it's and some of the skills are, are complex, even though they seem really simple. The idea of, I should praise more than, or give more positive attention than negative attention seems really easy, but in practice, um, what Wendy talked about at the beginning is that a lot of times what non-compliant behavior in youth draws out of adults um and defiance draws out of us, is a sort of response that is almost always unhelpful. It's, it's often an escalation, it's often emotional response. And so I think I always draw on this research to remind myself to continue to pay attention to my own interaction ratio and, um, and to be sure that it's, I'm trying to be mindful of making it that all the people that I interact with have more positive interactions with me than negative interactions.
0: I think that's wonderful advice from both of you. I, I think both as a as a teacher and as a parent, there's a phrase that, that I bat around a lot where I say I need to pick my battles, but but it's a lot more nuanced than that. I don't I not only have to figure out when I need to intervene, but as you as you both, you know, point out in such an eloquent way, I have to think about how I'm intervening and, and really that's the root message that you're both trying to get across um, with the research that you're doing. So I wanna thank you both for being part of the program. Thanks
2: for having, Thanks for having us. For having us.
0: And to the listeners, if you would like to learn more about the work being done at the Missouri Prevention Center, you can visit their website at prevention.missouri.edu. Uh, and on that website, you can not only find out about uh, this research, uh, but the other research that's conducted under the rubrics of the Prevention Center, and also find contact information for uh, getting a hold of either, uh, either of the two individuals on the program today uh, or other people that's associated with the Missouri Prevention Center. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich and I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening and have a great day.